Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. As many of you know, I'm Teresa Chan, but today I have an amazing guest for us, Dr. Richard Lenoir. He is an emergency physician who has pivoted into the world of writing books. And I know that many of our listeners have secretly always had a bucket list item of maybe writing a book someday. And I thought, what better way to inspire all of you than to actually have a conversation with someone who's just done that. So his book is called Love in the Time of Coronavirus, and it's available on kind of like all your main bookstores online. But I'll have Richard kind of give a plug at the end. But Richard, will you say hi to everyone who's listening? Hello, everyone, and a special thank you to Dr. Teresa Chang for having me and giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Um, We're always looking for really interesting new people to bring on our podcast. So tell me a little bit about your book. What what is it all about? I mean, it's kind of got that um, an allusion to a very famous book, Love in the Time of Cholera. And uh, I wanted to uh, get a sense of what this book is about. Sure. If I may, though, just begin um, by saying that I am, in fact, an emergency physician. I was in academics for 25 of the 31 years that I've been practicing. I was a program director. I started an emergency medicine simulation fellowship, emergency ultrasound fellowship. So I was immersed in the academic world. And yet, Since childhood, I've always had this dream of being an artist, of being a writer, but life happened. And next thing you know, I'm pursuing this academic career, three lovely children, and it just got put by the wayside somewhere in an attic. And I actually quit my academic job uh, sometime around 2015, not by choice. I really loved what I was doing. I loved particularly simulation. My life has been about uh, education and simulation for me was the place where I think the best education takes place. But yet in 2015, I had two kids in college simultaneously. And uh, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the Northeast, academics did not pay enough for me to sustain college tuitions, divorce debt. So I started doing locums And in 2017, I was working in this tiny hospital in Maine, uh, six beds, three nurses, and me. And crazy busy until about midnight, and then nothing. And that's when I actually wrote my first novel, The Twin Flames, The Master, and The Game. And since then, I wrote a play a screenplay entitled uh, The Peacemaker, for which I actually placed as a quarterfinalist in both the New York and Los Angeles International Film Competitions. 
And I was well on my way to writing the sequel for my first novel. I have 490 pages already. And then COVID hit. So here I was working in Westchester, which was the epicenter of the COVID pandemic in the United States. And I don't know, I just started getting ideas, not necessarily about the novel, but just ideas started coming to me. For instance, seeing everyone in masks and for the first time really noticing the beauty in people's eyes. Um, not in the sense that, wow, you have beautiful, you know, blue or, you know, green eyes, but beauty in the sense of the communication, you know, the saying, the, our eyes are the window to our souls, that kind of beauty. And I also realized how much of communication is facial expressions. I mean, we know that from an academic point, we're taught that. Um, but all of a sudden, to see how much communication comes through the eyes. The other thing that struck me was the number of people dying. And I had the fortune or misfortune to train in the late, in the early 80s, did my internship at Bellevue in New York at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, you'd meet a patient on Monday and they'd be dead on Thursday. It's a completely different disease now. And then I worked at Lincoln Medical Center in the South Bronx, where, you know, the most common form of death was uh, lead poisoning by gunshot wounds. So I guess I was acquainted with death. So it occurred to me that, wow, this generation, these generations of physicians after me had never seen death like this, unless if they you know, were in the military and worked in some war-torn uh, area, that just the number of deaths were mind-boggling to me. And I don't know, I instinctively, it's not something that I had ever done before. I had my iPhone because we were, I don't know what you guys are doing in, uh, in Canada, but at the hospital I was working, we use this thing called Tiger Tech. So we always had to have our iPhones because it was encrypted. And so I always had the iPhone in my hand and I just started doing, recording voice memos, just ideas that I started having, for instance, about the eyes, people dying, people dying alone, the possibility of getting to the point which was an almost everyday event last March and April of starting to black tag patients uh, because we were on the verge all the time of running out of ventilators. So I just started recording these ideas, not with any particular purpose in mind. I just liked the ideas and I was thinking of starting a blog at the time. And then one day, three weeks into it, those words came to mind, loving the time of coronavirus. That would be the it would be a great name for a novel, <laughs> not very original, but, um, and so that was the, the inception of the idea of writing a novel. And I shortly afterwards, just whenever I was home, just started writing. So that, that was the inception. That was the idea. Wow. That's and so interesting. Like, I love the idea of, you know, like how you just as an author took the time to notice things. Uh, and use that as your inspiration. Like it was the zeitgeist of the day. It was the, the immersion that you felt. And, yes. and then you use that. And I love the idea of the voice memos, right? Like, I think I'm going to have to steal that. Um, <laughs> but the idea of in real time, what are your thoughts? And then how can you turn that into, into something that, that you can then parlay into a little bit more of a robust piece of work. Right. And so I think that that really is so remarkable the way that you kind of had that 
realization that something was really important that was going on and how you could help to archive some of that experience. Yeah, yeah. And my writing style thus far has been, I guess the best way to describe it is channeling or automatic writing where I sit down, I basically show up, I'm curious, and I can't, I can't wait to see what comes out on the page because I, I don't write plots, I don't write outlines, I just let it flow. And every day I'm really eager to find out what is going to happen in this story. And it's for me been a beautiful process and all my artistic endeavors, whether it be, I actually saw on your list that you write music. I studied uh, jazz, jazz piano for many, many years with a uh, musical genius, Misha Piedgorsky. But whether it's that or photography recently or painting, it's all for me an exploration of creativity. And what I've learned is not necessarily my creativity, but my ability to show up and somehow get out of the way and allow creativity to come through me. And the story, I mean, the beginning was a lot of it was my experience. I'm, you know, working in the emergency department. I took events that happened and there were ideas around it, you know, that I developed. But beyond that, the story is a story that just came out. So that part for me is really easy. It's, it's and I think I've heard many writers describe this. It's, it's just about showing up. You know, they describe, uh, they, meaning great writers, describe uh, having two hats. One is the, the creative hat, your, the writing hat, and the other is the editing hat. And the mistake that many writers make is to, and I think this would be is this especially the case for someone with a scientific mind, meaning physicians, is to try to edit as you're going along. That's, that's death. That's the kiss of death. It's just basically writing, letting it all pour out. Um, and then that's the fun part. And then the work begins when everything's on the page and you have to, you know, as Hemingway, I think it was Hemingway said, you know, you have to kill your babies. Uh, I mean, there are whole chapters that are just, nah, this doesn't, this doesn't fit here. Um, but it was a really beautiful process for me to write this book because it was so close to home as an emergency physician, as well as a human being. I mean, this we have not seen a crisis of this magnitude that has affected the entire world. And that being such a pivotal moment in human history forced me to really ask the questions and this book asks more questions than it provides answers. But if this were to pass, and what makes this story relevant from my perspective is that we don't actually, we don't actually know which way this thing is going to go yet. And, you know, my story, basically, the first part of it is now we're actually starting, aside from places like Florida, the world, for the most part, where we're getting vaccinated, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And in the story, by December 2021, the world kind of declares victory over the coronavirus. And in January, a more deadly variant pops up that not only causes respiratory failure, but also it's the double whammy. It also gives you DIC. 
and people just start bleeding to death. And um, within 11 months, by November 2022, 4 billion people die. And the question, the questions that the, the novel begs is, well, if you were in this situation, and guess what? We may all be in this situation. What would you do? How would you contribute to rebuilding the world? We all, I mean, everyone has opinions, and the opinions don't cost us anything. But in that situation, all of a sudden, how would you contribute? These are real questions. You know, do we want to go back to the old way of doing things, or do we want to be more conscious about creating a world that's more friendly to humankind, that honors humankind, that honors and nurtures the planet? Questions such as, do we actually need international borders? Why do we have a world of haves and have-nots? And the book explores this concept that a lot of the things, the crises that we're facing in this world were unintended consequences. For instance, you had these major powers, imperialists, colonizing, I mean, for, as an example, countries in Africa, we created all these borders to suit their needs and ended up separating tribes that love each other, putting tribes together that hated each other, didn't speak the same languages. And that created a big mess in parts of Africa. And I don't think the colonizers ever intended that. Those were, just, those were unintended consequences. Um, so moving forward, do we want to try to do this more consciously? Not that we're not going to make mistakes, but at least if we're given a second chance, how do we go about doing that? So that's you know kind of what the story proposes. And it's in the setting of this beautiful and powerful love story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really important to kind of uh, bring the humanity in is to have the central characters be there and then and then to have all of this other swirling world that changes the context of that love story is is very interesting. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on for someone who does want to get into this kind of narrative approach or, uh, someone who you know wants to write a nonfiction book. Do you have any thoughts and advice for people who are interested sure. in becoming authors and joining the ranks of people like yourself as a published author? Absolutely. Just to, I just want to clarify. We're talking about fiction because I think there is a difference. Um, sure. I mean, fiction. Like, yeah, there probably yeah. is a big difference, but uh, maybe yeah, we yeah. can go into that a little bit too, like uh, for people who want to be a novelist. Um, and but I'm sure that you have tips as well for people who just want to write more frequently as well. So yeah. I think the most important thing is to write. Um, it's, it's in a way very similar to the practice of medicine. It's, it's an apprentice program, it's doing. It's just the, the doing, of course, the study that goes along with it and hopefully under supervision, but, but the real bulk of it is in the doing, the more experience you, you have under your belt, the hopefully the better at it that you get. So I think first and foremost, it's just putting away your fears, your doubts about yourself, doubts about the quality of what you're, what's coming out on the page and just writing. Um, I highly recommend um, reading Julia Cameron, 
the, I, the, it's called The Artist Way. This is a book that was published 30 years ago. And I, somebody gave it to me after I had written my first novel in the play. And it's so beautiful in that she, she, the main gist of the book is what they call, what she calls the morning pages where you sit and you write stream of conscious uh, three pages every morning and just let the words flow. And there's a process that happens that if you stick with it after about two weeks, Whereas it's, it's as though something grabs your hand and starts writing. And it's not you. It's not you. And, and, and this resonated with me so much because this is exactly what I had experienced in my uh, channeling and automatic writing. Um, but if nothing else, it just gets you to the habit of just writing and having fun with it. Um, I, I, as I said before, I show up with curiosity and I really enjoy the process i don't see it as work you know so i've heard some writers describe you know you have to you know every day set a certain amount of time you're going to write a certain amount of pages if that works for you that's fine also but i just i don't never count the words or how much time i just write until it's time to stop writing um the second thing that i would encourage people to do is get a program i'm going to put a plug in for this software program called scrivener or scrivener and it only costs something like $45. And I was mentioning that when I wrote my screenplay, everybody insisted that I use Final Draft, which is the industry standard. And after spending about $200 on that program, I discovered that it's built into Scrivener. And it's just a powerful program that allows you to break your writing up into little chapters. I, I started out using Microsoft Word and then Pages. And if you're using that, it's great for the first 50 pages. But then once you start getting to 100, 200 pages and you're looking for things, you're trying to just develop a certain section, it's not practical at all. Scrivener allows you to take a thought, like a paragraph, fully develop that. So I keep on developing. I have these little chapters and then I consolidate them after. And so it's just a, a wonderful tool that facilitates the writing. But again, the most important part is not to be afraid of the quality of what you're writing. That will come. First, just sit down and write. And ideas will, will come, ideas from your life experience in, from wherever. They may, for instance, I was doing my morning pages while I was in Ecuador, this was when I first met my wife, who's Ecuadorian, and I had some time to kill, and I was doing my three pages, my morning pages, and a story emerged. I had no idea what it was about. It actually felt very uncomfortable writing it because it was about the, the peace process or the lack of the peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and I really don't know very much about that situation. And it was somewhat violent, but... And at first I, I wanted to stop writing, but then I realized, no, this is the creative process. Who am I to try to control it? And the story kept on. It developed. It, I mean, basically wrote itself. And that turned into, at first I was thinking of a theater piece, but then it turned into a screenplay. And the same thing happened to the sequel of my novel, just in these morning pages, just stream of consciousness. The story emerged and I was 20 pages in when I suddenly realized, oh, this is the sequel to The Twin Flames. So 
it's a really beautiful process to allow creativity to come through you in that way. And my advice is write, write, write. And at some point down the line, like once you have so much already written and you feel like nothing else is going to come out, then you put on your editor's hat. And that's something that I think as doctors, rational, scientific minds, um, I think that we're naturally good at. We can look at sentences and say, this works, this doesn't work, this idea doesn't fit here, let me move it over here. Or, And that's the next piece of advice is don't be afraid of editing. The beauty is not like the old days where you had a piece of paper and you would just crunch up the piece of paper and throw it in the garbage. It's gone. I have no qualms about quote unquote killing my babies, but I save all of them, <laughs> you know? So it's always the idea that, you know, I can use this somewhere else, you know, in some other capacity. So you're not really killing them. You're just putting them in a deleted folder, like a folder that you call like deleted sections or whatever. And you could always come back to them and develop them later if you'd like. But it's just becoming comfortable with editing what you've written. And then after that, it's, you know, you have a few good friends, people who you trust to give you honest advice. Um, that's, and that's really hard to find. Someone who can read your work and give you honest advice and keeping in mind, of course, that you don't have to keep that advice. It's just, it's constructive criticism. And you, to you it's your choice whether you want to actually take it or leave it. Um, but I think more important than a friend when you're, at that point, I think you're better off paying somebody who doesn't know you, such as a content editor. In my case, in this novel, actually, my daughter, my 26-year-old daughter, did the editing and did the cover design, which I kind of broke my own rule of having a friend, a family member do the editing for me. But she's just so brilliant and had no qualms about just scratching out major sections and saying, this is nonsense. What were you thinking? And so we actually made a good team. So that's, you know, my, my rough, rough advice. Uh, is Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for pulling back the curtain and giving us some insights into that. Um, it's not every day we get to have uh, someone, you know, telephone their process. It sounds like it's a very personal one, though. So different people might find different ways of expressing themselves. And like you said, it's tapping into that creativity that you do have. Um, right. I think a lot of us lose it over the years, right? With all the memorization in medical school and right. the the routines that we get into, it's hard to sometimes feel creative. And so having an outlet like this might be what some of us need and maybe some of us already do some journaling or do some kind of drafting of things or write poetry. I think that there's so much beauty out there that if we take a moment to stop and pause and reflect through written word, through song, through dance, whatever it is that, you know, makes you feel human, that's, that can be really important. Exactly. Just one other comment that I want to make on the writing process, because I have heard of, another completely alternate style of writing, which is outlining, really outlining everything that you're going to write. Um, and I think that would 
probably seem very attractive to physicians to because we're organized. Um, but I think there is a point where that gets in the way of the creative process. And there are some people, one critique of that, not my critique, but one critique of that style of writing is you can spend your entire life outlining and never getting to the creative part. And I think what we we need as human beings, especially physicians who are, we're so, our lives are about organization, learning, developing, you know, left brain uh, functions. Um, I think the balance that we really need is just that creative channel that doesn't involve such organization until we get to the editing, of course. <laughs> that's, that's the work part. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. I mean, I think that like even um, depends on how you're writing too. If you're writing in a team, let's say you have a co-author, you probably calibrate to that person, for instance. And it's very different from academic writing is what I'm hearing, though, is that as yes. opposed to a paper where you have eight people, so you have to have a great storyboard. Sometimes it's okay to put away the storyboard so that you can just write from your heart and go where the nuances take you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. And do you think that um, becoming a writer um, and an author has made you um, think about clinical care differently? Like, did it, I know that you're not right now practicing as much anymore, but in the times where you were writing and working as a clinician at the same time, did you find becoming an author and becoming a writer and having that mind, um, writer's mind, that observational mind, change the way you processed the work that we do? No, in my case, no, because I think that from a very young age and certainly as I was beginning my practice, I always, I don't want to say approached medicine from an artistic point of view, but I was always very interested in uh, movements of energy. You know, I also practice Reiki, for instance, and it's seeing the person, not the patient who's complaining of X, Y, and Z. There's this whole other energetic communication that's going on. So it's observing and, and ultimately, I mean, this is going to sound so corny, but I really believe this. Many times what people need, what they need, yeah, they need antibiotics. They need, if you come in with a gunshot wound, you need a thoracotomy. Yes, I can do that. Um, but I don't know, 60% of what we do in the emergency department, 70% aren't real emergencies. And what people are asking for is love. They need somebody to hold their hand. And it sounds so corny and cliche, but I found, especially when I started uh, doing locums where there was no buffer of residents. My 25 years, I worked with residents and, and all of a sudden it was just me and the patients. And I ultimately thrived in that arena, which I wasn't expecting. But it was about holding somebody's hand it was about giving them a hug it was about listening to their stories uh, and connecting with them energetically and i think there in terms of i think the writing contributed to my practice and i think my practice contributed to my writing because i ultimately i saw it all as one and i and i remember so much the residents, you know, because here I am a program director, you know, talking about evidence-based medicine and in the same sentence, 
you know, talking about energy, talking about connecting with people, talking about the importance of not falling into the trap of looking at people as diseases. And they, you know, they roll their eyes. <laughs> um, but the greatest reward for me was, you know, sometimes it would take four or five, six years after they graduated. And somebody would contact me and say, Richard, I got it. I understand. Thank you. <laughs> and for me, that made it all worthwhile. But I, I think it, it all uh, contributes um, because ultimately it's not Richard, the doctor, Richard, the writer, the photographer, the artist. It's Richard, the human being who's connecting with other human beings in different capacities. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, in Canada, we have something called the CanMeds framework, which, um, you know, medical expertise and EBM and all that stuff were just a couple of the rules. But one of the one of the things that often has been criticized of this framework is that we don't talk about physicians as humans, right? And and I think what you're reminding us is that we're we're human beings. We're people who have emotions and experiences. Um, and yet in the sea of humanity that we have in the emergency department, um, a big part of it is having that realization that each one of the people that you're taking care of is a human in and of themselves that has their own story. Um, I recently learned this term called Sonder, which is yes. um, the realization that each random person that you encounter is a living their own life. Um, they have um, complexities and and troubles of their own and that they have their own thoughts and their own you know, drama that's hidden to you. And they're asking you about their stub toe. They're asking you about their heart attack. They're asking you about, you know, their, you know, the pills that were stolen from them. And each one of those people has had a whole life that you have only seen a glimpse of. And yeah. I think that uh, returning to things like narrative medicine, or even just watching like season one of ER again helps you remember that we see snapshots where we're the guest star in someone else's life in most movies, um, yes. not like ER, right? In most movies, the visit to the doctor is like a 10 second plot vehicle for some drama to happen. And yeah. we're that plot vehicle for, for most people, we're, we're like a side character in their story. Uh, and I think that's really important to remember. And I think maybe through the arts, through narr narrative medicine, through poetry, we can come to remember that part of our humanity. Yes. It's so funny that you mentioned the word Sonder because I had never heard it before until my 24-year-old son shows up with his first tattoo, <laughs> which says Sonder. And I was like, what? Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful term. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. It's it's a holistic view of humanity and who we are. And actually one of the, I, again, I didn't intend this, but one of what my novel touches on the first part is how physicians, how healthcare providers, frontline providers were reacting. And what I remember was the fear, just seeing the fear in people's eyes. I mean, and nobody talked about it, it but it, I, I, I saw it. It was like everybody saying, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I didn't sign up to be the hundredth canary. Uh, the first canary, okay, I get that. But to be the hundredth canary, it doesn't make sense to me that we don't have enough PPE and I'm being asked to sacrifice myself. 
possibly take this disease home to my family members and this whole thing of being a hero and and the 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 dissonance the dissonance the cognitive dissonance of having i don't know what was going on in canada but every day at 7 p.m you know everyone clapping for the frontline heroes uh which i thought was so interesting and for me working at that moment as a local emergency physician in corporate emergency medicine where you know while all this was happening we're a team we're a family we're working hard together and as when june may june came around and the ed was empty they weren't covid was kind of dead and all of a sudden the patients weren't there anymore and all of a sudden the leadership started talking about furloughing staff cutting salaries which was a bit demoralizing um so the book does touch upon you know who are we as emergency physicians or physicians in general and how have we evolved in this country you know we went from marcus welby md md i don't know if you're general if you remember who that was marcus welby but it was a 50s television show of, yeah and yeah. people used to respect doctors they used to you know and nowadays it's we've lost a lot of that and 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 how we've come to terms how we've internalized uh all of this the, the the novel touches on that because you know these are thoughts that i've had over over the years and have shared with residents certainly and trying to teach them not to fall into the trap of not liking your patients because they don't respect you because they yeah. are necessary because they're there in their moment of pain they're not like we have to kind of stand above that and still be the best that we can be yeah so it's it was a tricky it's a tricky situation yeah for um, sure it it takes some time to reflect on how you think about that and how you can you know center yourself and then return to find that sonder and that empathy then after that like after you sondered or think you have to find empathy that even though it's not your definition of an emergency because you have a wider world you've seen people die of strokes and heart attacks and you've seen the worst that can happen to someone right especially yourself you've probably taken care of people who have been shot and and uh, and and needed to be you know resuscitated maybe they survive right but um all those moments of trauma that you carry around with you other people don't have that and so what their emergency is is their definition and it's hard for us sometimes to frame shift from our own reality into someone else's and to know that someone else's life luckily is much smaller than yours we've stepped up to the plate and decided that we're going to endure all of these heavy things so that we can be there for other people but it doesn't mean that everyone else had that has that same world view and i think that that is a really important reminder that if we can give that to our, the residents who are listening um but also to our colleagues to take a step back and remember that um we all know it but we don't always remember it right what you're describing there's there's a term for it, spiritual circles it's it's called holding space which means exactly that you're not Yes, we're practicing medicine. I, I don't want anyone to walk away from this interview saying that you know I'm talking about hocus hocus pocus magic. No, we're we're practicing medicine. We're taking care of people. But aside from that little sliver of pathology that requires X, Y, or Z, 
that we're holding lar a larger space for patients to step into that emergency department with whatever ailments, whether they be psychological or physical, and to hold space for them and to take care of them and to ultimately make them feel like they're okay, that they're going to be okay. And that's such an important part, I think, for me. That was one of the most important parts of being a doctor. You know, the turning point for me came at Lincoln, I, you know, in the South Bronx, where literally every single night, this was prior to, this was in New York City prior to 1996, where there was just so much violence. After 1996, New York became a beautiful, peaceful place to live. I'm, I'm, I mean, it was literally night and day. And um, I remember a crazy night. It was like a scene. It was a senior-run emergency department. There were hardly any faculty. And I remember managing the ED. We were trying to. And there was this gentleman whose name was Walt Whitman, <laughs> of all my names. Six foot four, black man, homeless, stunk to high heaven, who used to fake asthma to get a pump, which has had a value at that time of $15 on the street. And he'd show up for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we would serve him breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'll never forget one day, it was a particularly crazy night. I was barely holding it together, and he asked for food. And I said, Mr. Whitman, this is not a restaurant. There are people dying here. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, but I said it in a really harsh way. And he stood up, got right in my face, again, six foot four, looking down at me. He, he had like rags on his hands and feet. And he said, How dare you speak to me? He called me, he said, Richard, because all the, I, I don't know, I've always had this thing respect is earned, not by a title. So I always, patients, I introduced myself as Richard's patients. And um, he said, Richard, how dare you speak to me that way? you have no idea what I look like with my wings on. And I just took a step back and I was like, whoa, that hit me like a ton of bricks. It sounded, again, corny, but it changed my life. Um, we don't know who people are. And um, I've learned to treat and I've taught residents to treat patients as though they were angels, just visiting you, allowing you to be the best that you can be, giving you the opportunity to shine and to see your own wings. And that metaphor has carried me through my entire 31 years of practice. Wow. Hopefully, hopefully it's reflected in my writing. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much uh, for sharing that really profound story. And um, maybe we'll just pivot to letting you kind of highlight your book. Um, I know that right now it seems to be uh, if you have a Kindle uh, subscription, maybe it's accessible for those who are out there. But uh, can you kind of let people know about your website as well? So maybe tell us sure. a little bit about, about the book and then where you can get it. And then um, tell us a little bit about how we can read more about what else you're up to. Sure. Well, everything can be gotten from my website, which is Richard Lanois, one word, richardlanois.com. Um, my writing, my blog, my everything's there. Um, the novel, it's I think with Kindle Unlimited, it's free. Otherwise, it's three ninety nine the Kindle version, and the paperback I think is twelve ninety nine. I think in Canada, um, sixteen bucks or something like that, but about the same. Yeah. 
and I'm presently working on uh, an audible version, which is a lot of fun. I get to be an actor now uh, and perform it, which is really nice. I just started that process. It's a huge learning curve, um, but I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And, you know, to put a plug in for the novel, it's, it's, it's a fun novel. It's exciting. It's relevant because it's what we're experiencing now. It's what the way I describe it to people is that at best, it will be prophetic. I certainly hope not. I'm really hoping that this doesn't happen. And worst case scenario is just a lovely story. It's, it's a love story. It's, it's ultimately about human resilience and hope for humanity that hopefully in, if such a situation were to happen, the opportunities, the potential opportunities that would come from this and allow us to step up and shine and perhaps correct some of the unintended consequences of the errors that were made centuries ago because, you know, we did things unconsciously. I think now in this day, day and age of communication, we have the, the capacity to, to make better decisions. And if such a thing were to come to pass, um, the story begs the question, what would you do? How would you contribute? Um, and that's what makes it ultimately um, relevant for today's times and what we're experiencing both as human beings and as frontline providers. But again, everything can be had on Amazon, through my website. All right, there great. And uh, just for the record, it's Richard, R-I-C-H-A-R-D, Lanois, L-A-N-O-I-X, so richardlanois.com. And you can check him out also on uh, Amazon. Uh, by spelling his name right. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing with us your um, amazing story and your wisdom. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Chan. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mac Emerge Residence Corner. As always, I'm Ben, one of the now PGY2s, which is a bit scary. Now, thankfully, we've got a great group of PGY1s who are joining us, and I'm lucky enough to have Ian Jones, Dr. Ian Jones, on with us today, who is uh, one of our new Mac Emerge PGY1s. I'm going to be speaking with Ian about an exciting project he's been helping lead as well as what life is like as a new resident at Mac Emerge and how that first off-service block of general surgery went. Ian, welcome to Mac Emerge. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to talk about the project and uh, just chat some more. Yeah. So, Ian, before I get into the project, could you tell me a little bit more about what transition to PGY1 has been like? 
For sure. So um, I went to med school at Mac and then doing my residency here, of course. So that's been kind of smooth. Not having to transition cities has been really nice. And honestly, everyone's been so supportive, a really great group of um, residents, mentors, and just like a lot of fun social activities we've gotten to do together, as well as the staff have been excellent. So it's been a really smooth transition. It's definitely a big jump going from like the responsibility of a med student to a resident, but I've really enjoyed it and I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're all very impressed already with our new PGY1s. Every year, uh, I think they keep saying they keep getting stronger and stronger. And I think the, your group is no exception to that rule. So, Ian, I want to chat with you about your project. I remember filling out this needs assessment a few months ago. And I believe it has to do with a treatment of people with opioid use disorder and addictions in the emergency department. But I'd like you to explain what this project you're leading is, what the current steps you're going through are, and how we as a program can help support you to get this project all the way through to its finish. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, So this project is actually something that we started uh, last fall um, with the the gracious support of the medical student research grant that the department is able to provide. And so what this study is, is we're looking at conducting a needs assessment to assess what are the learning needs of emergency medicine providers on addictions medicine topics, really in the emergency department. I'm working on this with Dr. Mondu, Dr. Chan, Dr. Lennox, who's one of our uh, wonderful family medicine and addictions physicians, as well as Dr. Kukchamowitz, who's one of our uh, new excellent staff at Joe's. Um, and so this project really takes a unique approach that um, uh, Dr. Chan's actually used a few times called a uh, massive online needs assessment. And so what it is, is really it's three parts to assess kind of the needs that people have learning on these topics. So the first part, we ask you to go through and kind of identify what you feel like you want to learn about on addictions medicine topics. We've got a whole bunch of options that you can pick from. The second part, really, we ask you to kind of talk about a story of, you know, a difficult experience you had or something that you feel like you want to learn more about in an experience that you had working with the patient. And then we can use these kind of more narrative prompts to pull out themes that, you know, people might benefit from educational material or or more resources on. And then finally, there's um, some questions, some multiple choice questions that go through and try and assess kind of your um, level of knowledge on different topics within addictions medicine and the eMERGE to try and see, you know, are there areas that people may not realize that they need more refreshing in, but that we can kind of help provide resources on. So we were hoping to get this done kind of around the spring, but we've been trying to kind of get some more responses to try and improve our capture and, and how many people that we can have fill this out so that we can really get much better data to provide great resources for people. And so if you haven't already filled out the survey, I'd highly recommend it. It's a uh, very short, only takes like 15, 20 minutes, and it will really help us to provide some great resources and learning resources for, for everybody really to help in treating people coming to our department with addictions, um, a group that, you know, really needs our our care and our best care and that um, we have a long way to go in providing excellent care to everyone. I have so many amazing things to say about this project. It's going to be such a solid project and it's so well thought out and you have an amazing group of mentors to help you with it. What a dream team. Second, I, I think you're highlighting so many important issues in a way that is so interesting. So from my understanding with this needs assessment, there's 
the topics emergency providers want to learn about. But then there's the topics that we might not know we need to learn about, which is going to be the questions. And then there's going to be those tough cases which can't be captured in a single topic, uh, an easy yes, no, I want to learn about that. So it sounds like you already have some really rich data and hopefully we'll get some more respondents after listening to this podcast who can help fill out this survey so we can provide the best resources for frontline emergency providers taking care of this population who really needs our best care. We know the mortality uh, of patients with opioid use disorder after an overdose is similar to that of uh, our patients who have STEMIs. Like This is a very important population that we need to take good care of. And I worry that if we don't have good knowledge translation of the best practices, we won't be able to. For sure. And that's, I think, why we also really wanted to take such a robust and holistic approach to trying to get all these different data points to give us kind of the best feedback that we can um, in creating resources for people. And I also just want to highlight as well, this isn't just for uh, physicians, residents. This is for like if we have nurses, paramedics, respiratory therapists, really anybody who's providing care to these patients in the emergency department. I'd really encourage you to fill out the survey. Um, we'd love to get feedback from everybody from all the different um, areas that interact together in the department so that we can really provide resources that are going to benefit everyone, not just physicians or residents. Yeah, so you heard it here first, folks. You need to fill out this survey and then you need to share it on your social media channels to distribute it out and get the best, richest information we can get. Ian, so it sounds like we're still kind of in the data gathering phase of this needs assessment. Once you have all the data, and hopefully that'll be soon with bumping this project up again in the minds of folks, how are you going to bring this into the knowledge translation steps and what resources are you going to be planning on developing? For sure. And so a lot of this is still kind of in the future that we're still working on. But I think the first steps are really gathering the data, putting it together. We're hoping to kind of have everything ready by this spring, hopefully to present at CAPE for everyone that can attend that. And then we're hoping to take all these results and parlay them into really a lot more resources on these topics. So whether it's, you know, things like uh, blog posts for Canadian, whether it's, you know, more podcast segments for podcasts like this or other podcasts, uh, resources that we can put up online for people to use on shift, like order sets, pathways, decision guides, really anything that, um, that we can create you to best address these needs that people bring up. And so I think there's a lot of potential here. And we haven't set any definite goals there yet. We're really just kind of hoping to get this data and, and figure out the f what people want to know about as the first step, and then looking at how to address that from, from there on. Amazing, Ian. It's a very exciting project. I look forward to following it. I look forward to having you on the podcast maybe this time next year, and you can explain the awesome new resources you guys have developed. So folks, that's just a reminder to fill out the survey. It'll be in the show notes. We'll make sure it's attached. And I look forward to seeing where this project goes. Any last words, Ian? No, I just want to thank you so much for highlighting this. I'd encourage everyone to fill it out. It's, you know, a great 15, 20 minutes. We also have a draw for some Amazon gift cards that you can win. So all the more reason to go fill it out. And I really appreciate, you know, highlighting this on here. It's such an important uh, topic. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. Be sure to say hi to Ian when he's on his off-service rotations over the next few months, PGY1. Stay strong, my friend. Stay strong. Absolutely. I'm friendly. I promise I don't bite. Thank you 
for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!